Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we continue our study of a year with Jesus' best friend, and we're in the Gospel of John right now. There was a health food restaurant that had a billboard that read, Eat Here and Live a Long Life. Well, not to be outdone, the barbecue restaurant across the street put a sign up saying, Eat Here and Die Happy. I think I would opt for that one, the barbecue restaurant, no doubt. I sometimes, you know, get a headache from... uh, a caffeine deprivation. Sometimes I get a a real need for a sugar fix or a salt fix, but I've never truly been hungry. But that's not true for 8.9% of the world's population. That's 700 million people who go to bed every night on empty stomachs. How dare any of us would open our cornucopia-like fridges and stare saying, There's nothing to eat. Or how dare any of us would say, I'm starving. It's a ludicrous overstatement. There are a few subjects that have as much common appeal as the subject of bread. We consume it without much thought. In the entire world, bread in some form is a staple for life. It was certainly true in Bible lands. All other dishes were sort of accessories to the main course of bread, it seems. Even today, if you go to the Middle East, you will find that Jews and Arabs will never tread on a piece of bread. However soiled or however contaminated it might be, they treat it as something sacred. If they see it on the ground, they will pick it up, no matter what it looks like, and they will set it aside or put it in a crack in a wall for some dog or some beggar to find and to eat. John chapter 6 carries us from the physical to the spiritual, the common to the extraordinary, from the earthly to the heavenly, from humanness to deity. Chapter 6 is designed to convert us, to stabilize us, to cause us to soar in our faith toward the one who is truly the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So there are two considerations we want to to carry with us tonight in chapter 6. One would be simply the experience of Christ's power as it's displayed, and then the, the, the identity of Christ that is made known because of the miracle that he performs. We start with Christ's power displayed. This is a, not a new account, a new story to most of us. Maybe, maybe it's not new to anyone who will be listening and, and watching, but it's one of those accounts that we love reading about and considering over and over again. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, he said, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. 
for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than eight months' wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon's Peter brother, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same thing with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This is, the scene is a familiar one. Jesus and his men come to this area around the Sea of Galilee because of two reasons. One is they're just exhausted. Mark's record of this account says that they were so weary and so busy, they didn't have time to eat. So they went away to have some to be reclusive, to just draw away from the demanding crowds. They were also grieving. Matthew tells us they had just received word that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so they needed time to replenish themselves both emotionally and physically. And so they came to this area. The crowd comes. They, they find Jesus and his men, and they're clamoring to get to him. The text tells us there's 5,000 men. They, they, they didn't count everybody in a crowd. They went by households. They counted household heads. And so, so there were 5,000 men, plus women and children, would make it 10 to 15,000 people there. Some have suggested up to 20,000 people had gathered in this area. They came that day, not expecting to be all day, but they're mesmerized by the teacher. And they want to hear more and more. They didn't come prepared to feed themselves. And so as the day got long, uh, there must have been people talking about their hunger. And Philip brings it up to Jesus. And, and Jesus be, engages Philip about it. They, uh, my, my guess is there were others who were bringing it up. It's not just Philip involved and not just Jesus suggesting it. But Jesus just engages Philip about it. And Philip is calculating. He said, eight months' wages would not be enough to give these people even one bite of food. We can't do anything about this. But Andrew has this boy. We don't know if Andrew found the little boy. The little boy ran up to Andrew and said, here, I have a, a lunch for the teacher. That's why we, how we'd like to play it out. We'd like to think of this little boy who runs to Jesus to feed the teacher. We don't know. But we do know he offered his lunch to Jesus. He had five loaves of bread, barley bread. The Greek word there is for barley bread, which was the food of the poor, and two little fish. It's given to Jesus who takes it and, 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 and feeds the crowd miraculously. And everyone is satisfied. No one walked away saying, well, I could have had more. Everybody was filled. Every time I spend time in this account, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed again by all that emerges. It doesn't matter how many times I teach it or preach it. There are new windows there is new substance to consider. I've got four brief ones to draw from it before we go to the rest of the chapter. First of all, I'm reminded this. Jesus accepts what we give him. Now, God already owns all the wealth and the, on the face of the earth. All the universe is his. But he he's just allows us to manage a small portion of it. We get to be stewards of it in a short period of time. But God wants us to understand that when we transfer it back to him, then when we devote all we have to him, that, that that's the best way that we can do something with it. That's the best way to steward it. And so he's looking for that in us. What do you have? What is yours 
to give to him. He will take what we give him, and that is the initial way we just honor God by acknowledging everything we have is yours, God, and I give it back to you for me to use any way you want in my life. Second, Jesus blesses what he takes. John tells us that Jesus gave thanks for this scrap of food. There's a principle in the Bible that says over and over again that that what you give to God, he gives back to you. His blessing is on it. You remember in Exodus 3, when Moses had in his hand that rod, and God told him to throw it down, and then God called it the rod of God. And with the rod of God, all these miraculous, miraculous things were accomplished for the glory of God. And God looks at us. He says, what's in your hand? What's in, what's in your house? Who's in your family? What's in your bank account? Well, what's, what opportunities do you have in your life? What's in your life? Give it to me. And watch then what I can do with it that you would never be able to do in your own power. Third, we learn that Jesus breaks what he blesses. If I would have been that boy with that lunch, now, you know, I was a nice little boy. And I can imagine if I'd have been there, well, I would have, I would have shared my lunch. Notice, shared. I, I, I would have given him a piece, maybe a whole loaf, maybe one-fifth, maybe a half of a loaf, a few bites. The fish, I've only got two, maybe. I don't know. But this little boy gives him everything. He didn't hold back, all given to Jesus. How often we can be so calculating in what we do for Jesus, right? We look at our calendars. We look at our money. Uh, we think about our energy and how we're made. And we, we can be so overly calculating that we hold back from extravagantly serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, Jesus doesn't call us to live unhealthy lives and totally, totally unbalanced lives. But it seems to me that most of us have a long way to go before we are living unbalanced lives for the glory of Jesus. After Jesus looked to heaven and thanked God for the food, he broke it. It was in the act of breaking the bread that he was able to multiply it. God loves using broken things and broken people. In our materialistic culture, a broken object becomes less valuable. We are a throwaway society. But in God's economy, brokenness only increases the value. The bread had to be broken before it was multiplied. A woman who had a bad reputation, remember, came to Jesus and came to his feet. And she had with her an alabaster jar of perfume, costly perfume. And she was overwhelmed by the master. And she broke that alabaster jar to pour the perfume. And the perfume, the aroma, did not fill the room until it was broken. And he was worshipped. The roof above Jesus where he was teaching had to be broken through for that paralyzed man to be lowered through the roof by four friends so that he could find the healing he needed out of his paralysis. And the body of Jesus had to be broken before our sins could be atoned for. David, the psalmist, was a broken man. He prayed in Psalm 51, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. God values broken things and broken people. 
Early in the 20th century, a spiritual awakening spread like wildfire in the country of Wales. And it started with a blacksmith by the name of Evan Roberts, who prayed this prayer over and over again. God, bend me, break me, conform me to the image of your son. Good friends, before we stand before Christ, may we all have prayed and lived that very prayer. Jesus accepts what we give him. He blesses what he takes. He breaks what he blesses. And fourth, he multiplies what he breaks. Jesus is the savior of the surplus. He is the provider of the plenty. King David didn't sing, my cup is full. He sang, my cup runneth over. If the little boy had kept his lunch to himself, he would have only had two sardines and a few pieces of matzo bread. That might not have filled up a growing boy, but because he gave it to Jesus, you know, he got to eat all he wanted, as well as everyone else who was there that day. There were also 12 baskets full of leftovers. And may I add, if Jesus cares enough to collect the leftovers from a little boy's lunch, don't you know how much he loves to collect people who feel like leftovers in their lives? And there are a lot of people like that that feel on the fringes of life without worth, without hope, with any substance to their life at all. And Jesus loves to call them to himself. So you, you need some multiplication in your life. God can multiply your blessings. He can multiply our effectiveness. He can multiply our influence. But it starts and it's continued to be learned as we keep learning to surrender more and more to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, this miracle serves as the basis, the foundation for the teaching that follows in chapter 6, because it's one thing to experience a miracle. It's another thing to experience the fullness of Christ. That's two different things. His power has been displayed, and now Christ's identity is experienced. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been here, there, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples, but they had gone, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
They were looking because they simply wanted more from him. They had experienced this miracle. They had seen him heal people. They had the gall to ask him to prove his identity. And he has informed them when he said, I am the bread of life. The obvious question is, well, how so? What do you mean you're the bread of life? So let me guide us through. What what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? First, he is bread for the mind. You know, Christianity is a thinking faith. Now, obviously, our emotions are involved in our faith. We are moved when we worship together. We are moved when we pray together and when we serve one another. All that affects the way we feel. But first, Christianity is a thinking faith. It's not a blind faith. This miracle, which serves as a means by which Jesus makes his claim, I am the bread of life, is designed to engage our intellect. It's designed to get us thinking, who is this? One of the big issues is how the miracles of Christ relate to proof that he is the divine man, that he is indeed deity. This is a a very familiar miracle. It's the only miracle except the resurrection of Jesus that is recorded by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Obviously, they were all struck by the, the, the sheer experience of this miracle. After the miracle, imagine all the buzz about Jesus. This this reminded this miracle reminded the Jewish audience of how their ancestors were led by Moses and, miraculous, uh, and miraculously fed in the desert. They seem to be bragging about it when they bring it up to Jesus. They want another miraculous sign. Show us the bread here, now, in this populated. Do this again. Show you're the Messiah. It tells us that we think what we need is a miracle. I've had people tell me that. Have you? If I could just see a miracle, if I could see, I know I'd believe. Oh, really? All these people saw them. They experienced them. And they still couldn't get to the identity of Jesus. Why? Because they weren't willing to think. They weren't willing to rashly work through the identity of this person. That. See, that's what miracles do. They make us think. They make us wrestle. When the people demand one, what does Jesus say? Okay, watch this one. No, he doesn't do that. He refuses because miracles are not primarily proofs of Jesus' identity. Think of all those who witnessed miracles and never really had their hearts converted. Most people who are exposed to the teaching and miracles of Jesus never became disciples of his. We wonder how that could be. All the miracles of the world wouldn't have done it. The miracles were signs. John says, I've written these things that you may believe. So he has seven signs in his gospel that point to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the miracle I'm the bread of life. This is Jesus' point. What is the evidence or proof that Christianity is true? Jesus is saying, look, it's, it's me. It's not just my miracles. It's not just my power, but it's all of me. It's my teaching. It's the way I live. It's the way I conduct myself. It's the way I'm involved with people who are the misfits and the outcasts that nobody else wants to love and bring hope to their lives. It's the authority by which I speak. It's the truth of God. It's the way I'm the the fulfillment of all the prophecies. It's every dimension about my life. I, I, 
I've had people, somebody said to me once, you know, I, I'd like to, I could believe if somebody just gave me a watertight argument for Christianity. And here's the truth, friends. Christianity does not give you a watertight argument, but it does give you a watertight person. And that's one of the things that separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. The very person of Jesus. George Whitefield was a great Anglican preacher uh, of the 18th century. And he was a great communicator. And at the end of his sermons every week, he repeated the verse that he preached about. And then he said, go and learn what it meaneth. (laughs) I think I might start that. In other words, he says, you've heard it, now go work it out. Go think about it. Go, go digest it. Get it into your system. Meditate on it. Chew the cud of that truth. Um, it, it's up to the hearer to think it through. If you want to be completely convinced, you have to take the life of Jesus in all the way. You can't dabble. You have to let it embrace you as you embrace the gospel. He is bread for the mind. He's also bread for the body. Miracles are not so much proofs of his power as they are demonstrations of his power. Understand that if the main point of miracles is to show you his power, he really could have done a better job. Remember when Luke began, uh, John, or toward the beginning, he preached the, the wedding feast at Cana. And he said in his sermon, I mean, of all the things Jesus could have done, this is his first miracle? You know, better punch at, at, the, at the wedding reception? It doesn't, really, it doesn't really do a lot for you. Um, here, I mean, you want bread? You want another miracle? Okay, he could have done a better job. He could have said, stand back, called a meteor from heaven, blown up trees that turned into bread, open your mouths, and let the bread and fish drop in your mouth. I mean, that would have been something. I mean, he could have done anything. He could have flown over the crowd and dropped bread and fish on people up to their knees if he wanted to. No, he didn't do that. The miracles are not demonstrations simply of raw power. They are signs of his mission. They tell us what he came to do and how we can be a part of it. Obviously, we know that Jesus came to save us from our sins. That was his primary purpose. But he also came to address our suffering world. Every one of the miracles, do you note, comes against suffering. This means the miracles show that God doesn't like the condition of this world any more than we do. We get weary by pain, don't we? And disease. And a pandemic. Poverty. And all that, we, all that this world has in it. But, but look what Jesus does. He shows kindness to an embarrassed wedding party. He feeds a crowd of people who are hungry. He heals someone who's sick. He opens the eyes of the blind. He resurrects the dead. You know, people say to us who are outside the faith, why, why in the world does God allow all this evil and suffering? We've even said it to each other, haven't we? And we have to say to them, I don't know. But we can also say, you know, God hates it too. 
And how do you know that? Well, look at every one of the miracles. None of the miracles were tricks to just, for Jesus to wow us. He never did miracles for that reason. Every miracle is an assault on the destruction and devastation wreaked by the evil one in this world. His, his, his power shown in his miracles is an assault on decay and injustice and death. John the Baptist sends that message to Jesus. Are you the one or is somebody else? And Jesus said, look, John, tell John, the blind see. So there he's addressing physical brokenness. His answer was, the lepers are cleansed. There he was addressing spiritual alienation because lepers couldn't be a part of the spiritual community. They couldn't go in the tabernacle in the Old Testament time. They couldn't go in the temple. They couldn't go in the synagogues. They were, they were considered unclean as people viewed them in their relationship with God. And the, the poor have good news preached to them. That speaks to social injustice at different levels. He groans in great distress in front of Lazarus' tomb because of the pain that death has brought into the world. Jesus, in every miracle, is saying, I hate this. In the miracles he performed, he is actually not suspending the natural order, but temporarily restoring it. That's what Jesus is saying to us in the miracles. Moltmann is a German theologian, and he said, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus Christ has come and said, not this. Not, this is not the natural world. Eden is the natural order. And when he feeds the hungry, he's reminding us that God is designing a world without children with swollen bellies. When God heals the blind, when he resurrects the dead, he's looking back to the world, the former world, the natural world, the world God actually formed. And he is pointing ahead to a new creation when all these elements are going to be destroyed by fire. And he's going to, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Praise God for a day like that. He is bread for the body. He's also bread for the heart. Jesus is saying you and I need to be changed at the very root, the very core of who we are. He makes some claims that are so staggering on, in chapter 6. You can read those later on your own. I hope you will. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. His teaching got so difficult. And uh, his disciples said to him, we can't handle this. That's what verse 66 says. Right in that area. It doesn't say the crowd went away. It doesn't say the masses went away. It says many of his disciples turned away. Not the 12, but others who were following turned away. The teaching got too hard. So he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, you know, where else are we going to go? Now, mind you, he didn't say, no, we got it. We understand what you're saying. <laughs> he didn't say that. He was confused. He just said, no, because as hard as your teaching is, Lord, you make more sense than anybody, and we're sticking with you. And you said, sometimes the faith, life of faith is like that, isn't it? The teaching is hard. The call is hard to lay down our lives and die to self, it's hard. 
but it's worth it. Because there's no one else who has words to life, only him. Jesus had said in a verse in the text, I think verse 65, that's why I said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And what he's saying is, what I'm telling you is so overwhelming. Unless you have divine help, you're just not going to get there. We need to ask God to help us in our journey to understand him better and embrace him. In his teaching, Jesus is saying, everybody is hungry. Everybody has a spiritual hunger. Everybody. Underneath our physical hunger is spiritual hunger. That's why fasting, we can't go into that, but that's why it's such a great discipline, because it reminds us of our deeper hunger, spiritual hunger. In verse 27, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And what he, what he simply means is there's some kind of hunger in us that's very deep, and anything we put there, whether family or job or money or retirement or trips or social acceptance or comfort, whatever we put there, is never going to satisfy us because it's not designed to satisfy us. God in his creative genius made it that way so that we would have this gnawing desire for him. Jesus saying, I will give you life. I'm not going to just show you the way to life. I'm not going to give you just rules for life. I'm not going to be a guide for you. I am life itself. When you come to me and take me in, um, that's all you need. And you won't be asking, what, what do I need to do to do the works of God? He says, the work is to believe who I am. Trust in me. What a Savior. Isn't he good? Isn't he good? He's so patient. He's so loving. While we tend to chase after the things we think, even, even in faith, we tend to chase. Into, no, he says, Look, I'm the bread. I'm the true bread from heaven. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.